Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Lorelai Weissel-Labrizzi. I'm Brian Dawes. And I'm Chris Delano. And we are here with a very special episode. Very special. Maybe the most special episode we've ever, ever done in the history of the show. Uh, it's, it's special for uh, the reason of uh, this is the only episode we are ever going to talk about the five past timeline stories for Brothers War, which makes it unique. This is unique, one-time event, never going to happen again. So y'all are very lucky to be listening. We are actually contractually not allowed to discuss these episodes outside of this episode. Um, <laughs> legal action will be taken on us if we discuss these stories uh, on any other episode of the podcast. So yeah, that's true. I call shenanigans. Oh, it's 100% shenanigans. I'm, I'm overhyping this a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we are uh, finishing out the rest of the Brothers War web fiction. Uh, two weeks ago, we covered the present day stories. And uh, last week had their author, uh, Reinhardt Suarez, on. Um, and that was great. He was wonderful. Uh, and so uh, this week is uh, the... the by Miguel Lopez, who is the creative lead for the show. Uh, I was about to say for the show, but uh, the <laughs> not, not quite. The we set. could totally we could see if Miguel wants to take on creative lead of the Vorthos cast. Oh uh, no, not no, no. When I said show, I didn't mean like our show. I in my head, I was like the show, the Brothers War, right? But it's a card set. It's a card set with stories with web fiction. It's not a show. Um. And I guess uh, I, I will also mention there we have an author credit for Jeff Grubb, author of The Brothers War. Uh, why does he get an author credit in this web fiction? Well, you know, I'll have to stick around to the end to find out. That's another marketing gimmick. <laughs> uh, uh, what is written in our news tab? Oh, Brothers War is out. Yeah, you can play Brothers War. The set's out. Go buy your things. It's on digital. It's in paper. Enjoy. Uh, although I, I assume, Chris, did you write this little news blurb? I, I did. I, I did. Yeah. All right. I'm just going to read it word for word because I think this is worth listening to the, the bullshit Chris writes sometimes. <laughs> bro is out. Your bro came out. You should be proud of him and supportive. Love is love. Y'all should not leave me alone with the agenda. <laughs> it's not a good idea. It's a great idea. I don't know what you're talking about. Wait until we get to the summary for uh, episode four. Um, that's some of my greatest work, I think. <clears throat> uh-huh. Uh, also, we don't have a show next week, as we will all be mysteriously absent. Something, something, turkey, something, something, overrated holiday, something, something, stuffing. I love Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think one of, the, one of the most fun parts about being an American is getting to have arguments about which is the most colonizer lauding holiday. <laughs> I mean, that's obviously Christopher, Christopher Columbus Day, which should be yeah. abolished, but whatever. So should Thanksgiving. Well, I so should I th Thanksgiving. I think of Thanksgiving as an excuse to eat a bunch of food with your family and get into arguments, which Christmas is as is an Italian just I think culturally very important. Um, <laughs> But also, we could just do that any week. Correct. I have I eat more food visiting my grandma on Long Island than I did at any Thanksgiving ever. Both my grandparents cooked when they were both alive. 
and we would dinner would li- we would like have four hours of eating. It's great. Normalize doing that shit. As a as a little aside, some uh, some lore of Chris here. Uh, my family, as an Italian family, we used to meet every Thursday night uh, and have dinner at my nana's house before she passed away. Uh, and I mean, like every Thursday night, uh, we'd get there at like four or five o'clock, and we would eat, and we would be there until like you know dark. Uh, and we did that every Thursday. And part of the reason we did it on Thursday, I believe, was that that way Thanksgiving didn't really like interrupt it. You know. Uh-huh. <laughs> you would have Thanksgiving dinner and it would just be another Thursday. But no, yeah, she'd cook for all of us. And I mean, like the whole family would be there, you know, Hell yeah. all my aunts and uncles, all my cousins. So there'd be like easily 20 to 30 people in this house some weeks just having Hell a normal yeah. weeknight meal. Uh, that's Hell the joy yeah. of being an Italian American, everyone. It's it great. depends how much your family hates each other. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the important part is Thanksgiving is bullshit, but we will also not have an episode because... Some people will be eating turkey. Uh, it'll probably be almost everyone. Turkey is delicious, <laughs> by the way. Like, no no shade if, if you're eating turkey. Like, that's just good stuff. Someone makes you a turkey. Look, the holiday's bullshit, but eat that turkey. That's good stuff. As long as it's not, like, too dry. They made bad turkey, then don't eat it. Or do. Whatever. I'm not your mom. Uh... <laughs> uh what I am is a co-host of the podcast who's gonna talk about the end and the beginning. Oh, did you get those switched around, or is that... No, no, actually, <laughs> episode one of the past stories of the Brothers War uh, is titled uh, The End, and episode two is titled The Beginning. Uh, these are a pair of episodes that, um, with uh, Caleb and Krug as the POV character, uh, set various numbers of years after the Brothers War. So uh, we, we start the past looks into um into the brothers war after the war itself to to kind of look at the fallout uh apt metaphor given that urza literally basically dropped a nuke on argoth uh it's not great uh actually (laughs) things are not great (laughs) um so i guess actually hmm, uh up front, I'll say one of the goals of these flashback stories is uh, none of these retell events from um, the novel using characters from the novel by Jeff Grubb. Uh, these are all original stories, mostly. Except for the story that literally has Jeff Grubb's author credit yeah, on it. Yeah, we'll They're get all there. Original. We'll stay to the end and find out. Or fast forward if you're like really impatient. I guess people these days would say skip forward. I say fast forward because I'm from the VHS generation and people don't have those anymore. You could seek forward, maybe? (laughs) No, Brian, you're in the same age group. You're also a VHS generation. You're not going to be able to wrap your brain around whatever language they use. Those tykes. The tykes (laughs) who are like in their 20s now. Um, Oh, God. So, uh, this is, these stories are largely looks at, like, the people on the ground during the war. People not involved in Urza's and Mishra's business. Uh, the people who the war affected, who were victims of the war, who sought greatness in the war. Some find it, some don't. Uh, and, uh, get, getting kind of the, the other stories. So, uh, we, we start with Kayla after the war. Um, Ma- there's not a lot left on Tourisier. And a lot of the survivors from 
uh, all over the Allied nations have congregated in Penrigan, uh, the capital of Argive. Uh, Kayla basically is in charge uh, with a little council. Um, here's the problem. It's starting to get really cold and it's snowing. And uh, as the years go by, the bay freezes over more and more and more until it just freezes solid. And then all these little shanty towns pop up on top of the ice. Um, agriculture is struggling workforce is struggling they're still trying to rebuild the outer walls of penrigan it's bad uh about five years after the war tanos is uh woken up from his little box stasis box <laughs> by urza uh and uh shows up to be part of uh kayla's advisory group and he looks like a goddamn skeleton wispy hair saggy skin sunken in eyes lines carved like canyons on his face this is a man who has been killed by this war yet is cursed to draw breath in a metaphorical sense he's not literally a zombie uh but he sure does <laughs> think his creature type is human artificer actually yeah but he's got he's got vibes bad vibes and so he helps fix up some of the old automatons and convert them to like civilian units uh, things that can help with construction and, like, agriculture and firefighting, crap like that. Um, his old, uh, his clay units. Uh, until one day, outside the gates, there's a massive army. They look real roughshod. I imagine that that army looks like the, uh, the parade from Black Parade. <laughs> Are you, you telling me that the, the followers of the Church of Tal are uh, emo kids? Yeah, I, I told that's that's the image that I had in my head when I when I read that passage. Like I envisioned the music video for Black Parade. <laughs> Sorry, I'm Sorry, just sitting I'm here just... being like, okay, but like, <laughs> I mean, Gerard Way shows up to the gates of Pinragon. <laughs> no, I'm just like. Okay, but does Gerard Way play magic? And if he does, can we have him on the show, please, please, please? I would, I would literally die. I respect Gerard Way so fucking much as an artist. Holy shit, I would die. I have also been a lifelong fan of Gerard Way, so I appreciate this. But I am, I am just imagining like Gerard Way leading the Church of Tal and these these zealots, and he's like. When I was a young man, my father took me to the city and it was bombed by a bunch of fucking ornithopters. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, but, but that is the life. Teresier, nobody in Teresier who is living after the war has not been, has not had their lives touched by the war in some way. And most of them have had their lives devastated by the war. Uh, and so the Church of Tal is this reactionary movement against that. We are against magic. We are against artifice. We are going to bring law and order and go on a crusade. And uh, so they're doing that. And they show up to uh, Pentagon and are like, yo, we're going to freaking destroy you if you don't shut down all your artifice and stuff. And Kayla is like, Lamau, bring it. And uh, it turns out the Church of Tal has been infiltrating basically every remaining city in Tercier and 
So public opinion actually isn't as strong as uh, Kayla hopes, and there's this kind of insurrection within the city while they're fighting outside of the city, uh, and all these civil automatons that um, Tano's reprogrammed, he has to convert back to military units, and everyone is once again reminded that how terrifying uh, soldiers that do not sleep and do not cry and do not care are when they just slaughter meat sacks of soldiers one by one by one by one by one. Uh, but they do repel the attack and things get worse. Uh, and <laughs> shout out to Miguel for having everyone in this story fucking dunk on the landlords. <laughs> uh, the landlords take massive advantage of the whole situation to enrich their coffers to the point where Penragon stops being habitable. Uh, people are leaving in droves out west. You know, there's rumors of newer cities, warmer climates, places where agriculture is still good, and so on and so forth. Uh, and um, Kayla's having a rough time. And so she goes, uh, she occasionally goes up to, uh, see, I think I wrote it incorrectly. There's a, there's a mansion uh, in the care ridges by Urza's tower where like she used to stay when Urza was at the tower and stuff and it's like empty and run down and she sleeps on the floor and has horrific dreams uh, and one day she just feels such emotion from the people and the land and everything and then makes fire happen and it turns out bam Kayla knows how to do magic now she can do basic pyromancy. Um, that's cool for her. And basic healing. She learns. She learns yeah. healing because uh, healing and pyromancy are not that far apart. Yeah, it's, it's the you know light. Light can be the warmth that heals you, or the fire that turns you into a pile of ash. Anyway, uh, so she's also been hearing rumors about some ornithopter pilot out west, and she's like. Maybe Harbin really did survive the war. Maybe I can see my son again. Oh, by the way, Jarsil, her grandson, Harbin's boy, uh, is staying with her. And she's very protective of him. And for a character who had a single line of flavor text in Antiquities, I believe it's just one. There might be two. Uh, anyway, for an extremely minor flavor text character, uh, Jarsil appearing in these stories as an actual character was a treat for me to read. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, Kayla and Jarsil look around at Penragon, and they, they do what the Share Zone recommends. If it sucks, hit the bricks! Uh, so, uh, they are among the last to leave, uh, and they basically leave all the landlords to freeze to death in piles of their own money, and I, I yes, correct. It's wonderful. Uh, that is the correct way to treat landlords. Also, important note here uh, that didn't make it onto the agenda is that uh, when the church is like attacking Pinragon, uh, mysteriously, uh, Tanos's like office burns to the ground. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, and all of his designs and all of his sketches are gone, and he goes missing. Uh, and it's yeah, uh, it it is it is implied that he started the fire in his office and killed himself because of war trauma, basically. How could I have done such terrible things? But they never find a body. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was ground zero for a fire, so it's probably just 
piles of ash now, right? Yeah, I'm sure he's dead. That's totally how setting yourself on fire works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's that. Uh, so they, you know, so they make their way west. They come across the ruins of Krug, which is now flooded, I believe, um, by the river. Uh, there's an old warlord there. Uh, and then they continue on to um, a new city that's built up. Uh, and Kayla and Jarsil stay there for a while until um, uh, Jarsil is like, hey, I want to go adventuring. I want to leave the city. And Kayla's like, yeah, I kind of do too. I want to keep heading west. And Jarsil's like, oh, well, there's this, you know, school for magic and artifice up north. Uh, and I think I would like to go there. Uh, and she's like, well, cool, then this is where we part ways. And uh, we learned that the uh, this this school is uh, founded by people named Nod and Duck. I wonder who those could be. It's Ashnod <laughs> and Taunos. Uh, Taunos was affectionately named uh, Duck or Baby Duck or Little Duck by Ashnod because she always taunted him for following Urza around like a duckling. Like Urza was Mother Duck. Um and uh, then we get our little epilogue where the warlord in the ruins of Krug has his booby traps in his, his room to stop assassinations. His like, alarm system triggered. And then he sees some kind of specter floating above him. Scares the hell out of him. Wonder who that could be. It would be really convenient if there was like someone in the present day projecting their ghost back in time and getting the wrong destination a bunch. Clearly Urza. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's Teferi. Um, it it says in the story, there's like a Teferi is like, oops, I sudden, uh, I'm in the wrong place. I'm in some dude's bedroom. And yeah. then like goes back to the present or whatever, goes to the right time. Uh, and that, that warlord goes absolutely entirely insane. I feel bad for that guy. Completely. <laughs> I don't. He sounded like an evil, evil warlord. Yeah, you're not um, wrong, but it. at the same time, it's like his guards just walk in and one of them, and two of them look at each other and like give themselves a look. So they 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 like know he's gone insane, but like all this could have been avoided if Teferi was a little bit more careful with where he placed himself. But oh well. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, it's good for letting us know that like the reason Teferi is going back as a ghost is because he does have the power to affect history in some way. Uh, because it does mention that uh, the story of that warlord, like going like out of his mind because he saw a ghost, and like the way that that ruins his kingdom is like actually like a piece of history in Tersier until it kind of like fades into yeah, it becomes this like moment yeah. of lost history mm -hmm. where uh, Teferi, who's not supposed to be changing things, accidentally changes a thing, but it ultimately doesn't matter, and that's very nice, good actually that he didn't like butterfly effect the multiverse out of existence almost <laughs> <laughs> the other cool thing i want to mention about episode one this is the part where i get to be uh, a little vain uh one of the things working on the set um so we have lanoir wastes reprinted uh lanoir is on the opposite side of this big ocean that stretches out from the east of tercier um to the west coast of um um, I'm just totally blanking on the Arona, the continent of Arona, uh, of which Lanawar is on the like general southern side of. Um, so, in theory, 
you know, a big explosion by something like the Golgothian Silex could maybe be seen across the ocean or felt or something, uh, which is, you know, what Lanoir Wastes depicts. Um, the Spice Isles, by the way, are also in this ocean. Uh, that is where Talario West is. Um, and so when I was working, I, I did name some text for the set. And uh, when I was looking at this card, I was like, hey, it'll be... I wonder what the name of this ocean is. We can get some, like, geographical data. It's a cool lore thing. And I was looking at the maps and stories and books. And I couldn't find anything. Well, I guess it just doesn't have a name. I guess that ocean yeah, just will like, never have a name. I guess it just doesn't have a name. So I was like, hey, hey, y'all, can we name this ocean? It doesn't look like it has a name. And, like, this is a really cool opportunity to do it uh, and Miguel was like yeah I actually note you know there there's a line in one of these stories where this body of water is mentioned uh I forget what he had it listed at the time and I was like cool cool I'm, I'm like feel free to pitch names here I, I've got a couple I'm thinking of and one of them was the visceral sea um for the one reason of there's no explanation why homerids are called viscerids by the time alliances rolls around uh, the original Homerids were attacking Sarpedia down south. Uh, by alliances, they are flooding Tresier, uh or what's left of it during the Flood Age. Um, and yeah, just no idea why they're called Viscerids. And I'm like, well, if they came out of a body of water called the Visceral Sea, then you might call them Viscerids because after the body of water that they're from. And, you know, if they're a barbaric race that you've never seen before... Well, maybe you just name them after where they came from. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, that seems like a good enough reason to explain this tiny little name change 25 years ago in Magic Card sets for my personal favorite creature type. And uh, Miguel was like, yeah, OK. <laughs> and uh, that is how the Visceral Sea became a named a major named location on Dominaria in 2022, uh, 30 years into the game. Uh, and this, this, this set was very cool and very unique in our ability to, uh, do that. And, uh, so thank, thanks to everyone who was like, yeah, okay, we can do this. Uh, cause that was, that was very cool to be able to, to do that. All right. You named, uh, you named a, a whole ocean or a sea. I named an ocean after Homerids. Yep. <laughs> it's about the most me thing possible. <laughs> Next thing you have to do is name a moon. Oh, if I could name another planet in Dominaria's solar system, that would be messed up. Those are the first two episodes, which are all about uh, uh, Caleb and Krug, and they're really, really good. I really enjoyed those. Uh, they were a great introduction to the Brothers' War story. They got mm -hmm. a lot of the themes through. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, war is bad. Urza was also bad. A lot of people's lives were destroyed by this war. Uh, here's setting the tone for the rest of the the series. Uh Episode three, though, episode three, which is called Sword One, uh, jumps back like, what, like 40 years in the past? Uh, yes, it it jumps back to the sacking of Krug, which is mm -hmm. not historians would debate whether or not this was the first real battle of the Brothers War or whether the um, Ornithopter bombings during the peace summit not too long before this were the first battle. Um, but, but this is where unambiguously we are at war after this. Um, 
And this story is great because if you've seen, uh, <laughs> once again, my limited Gundam experience comes in handy here. If you've, if you've seen War in the Pocket, the uh, six episode Gundam OVA, congrats. You, <laughs> you understand what the story is about. <laughs> yeah, I will, um, I will, I will uh, read directly what I believe was Lorelai's quick summary yes. of the story before I, I give a little bit more details. Uh, it says, uh, Sanwell. Wow, cool robot. Everyone starts dying. Sanwell, war is bad. Um, and then Teferi ghost spooks uh, uh, Falaji dude. Um, so, yeah, this is the wow, cool robot to wow, war is bad uh, story. Uh, it starts off with Sanwell, who I believe is mentioned in the novel, if I recall correctly. Is that like, I think it's a name taken from the novel somewhere. Uh, I think so. I'll... Oh. He's, like, not a major character at all. <laughs> I think his yeah, name is no. just mentioned somewhere. Uh, but uh, he is, uh, like, a fresh-faced recruit, and he's about to pilot his first mech. Uh, and he is about to be thrown directly into the sacking of Krug. Uh, Taunos is there, and he's like, congratulations, cadets. Can, you've graduated from the training program. Also, you're not pilots. <laughs> You've graduated, and uh, here's your robot, and it's the top of the line, fanciest thing we got, brand new. Uh, go out and kill some Falajis. Bye. Uh, and then Taunos pieces out. Yeah, they're called the Avengers. Uh, I should also note they're <laughs> not, like, inside the mechs, like in a mecha anime. Uh, they have control yeah. rods um, that uh, can both issue commands and um, mirror pilot movements. Um, so if, if you look at the art for Sanwell's card, uh, he, the, the, his Avenger is mirroring his physical movements while he holds the control rod. So, um, the, the Avenger pilots get to make human decisions for their mech or kind of put it into autopilot modes, uh, on the fly in the field. Um, and that, that's kind of how those work. So when, when we say Sanwell's a pilot, he is on the ground he's boots on the ground not inside a mech yeah these i i think i understand the like reasoning behind not having vehicles in the set as like a card type because of the fact that like the mechs involved are not like traditional vehicle mechs they just yeah. turn them on and they do their work uh because they they can also act somewhat like autonomously um they can like if you issue a command to like hold a checkpoint they will hold the checkpoint. You don't have to like tell them like hit this guy, hit that guy, hit this. Yeah, they they do their own thing. As someone who is building a vehicle deck, I'm very disappointed they are not vehicles. <laughs> well, um, so so yeah, Sanwell gets a fancy new robot and gets sent out directly into this like battle. And I am not going to give you like a play by play of everything that happens because it is uh, it's war. So, like, imagine all of the worst things that you can imagine are happening. You know, sometimes they have, like, ooh, a fight that we win. And most of the time they have fights they lose. Uh, then uh, it's Sanwell and he's, like, four other people. Two of them die basically immediately. Uh, the other two, one of them is just, like, shell-shocked. Literally, like, out, like, cannot respond unresponsive for, like, the entire episode slash fight. Uh, and the other one is like actually fighting alongside uh, Sanwell, Rika. Uh, and then uh, they run into some Falajis, uh, they fight, and then they think they're doing okay. And then there's a dragon engine. And uh, yeah, dragon engines, uh, they're really scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the the Avengers are like 15 feet tall or whatever. 
And mm-hmm. uh, the dragon engines are like forty feet long or bigger. They're they're like dragons, but machines. They are terrifying. Uh, also, they breathe fire. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> also, so worrisome. The the dragon engine kind of tears through the Avengers. Um, the only one left standing is, is Sword One, and then Sword One also uh, gets mostly defeated. Uh, and Sandwell sort of issues one last command to Sword One, which is the robot that he was given to just, you know, fight, kill. And then uh, Sandwell throws down uh, his control rod and he and uh, Rika run away <laughs> uh, because this uh, dragon engine just absolutely decimates them, uh, destroys Krug. Krug does not survive this battle. Uh, and Correct. in the dust. That's why it's called the sacking of Krug or the raise of Krug. Yeah. You have a card about this. Yeah, uh, there's a card. That's the card. The Fall of Krug. There we go. That's the name of the card. Yeah, Krug does not stand. It falls. Uh, they do not successfully defend the city. They uh, most of them die. They lose their their uh, their Avengers and they run away. And then uh, at the very end of the episode, we get kind of a little uh, look into the Falagis because one of the Falagis who was you know defeated, kind of ripped to shreds by the Avengers. Uh, he is surviving and his name is Ayman and he is like crawling through this death and destruction, uh, literally crying and screaming at some point. He was hit by arrows. Uh, he's fully wounded. He, it's unclear if he's even going to survive this. Uh, and, uh, he wakes up, he like passes out and then wakes up again in the middle of the night and there's a ghost, like a softly blue glowing ghost hovering nearby. Uh, and Ayman starts praying and the ghost looks to him and he walks over and uh, Ayman is, is praying and thinking like, this is death. This is death himself has come to claim me. And then death says, not yet. And then he disappears. Uh, he says, uh, actually, he says, we're too early. We're years away, decades at least. It doesn't happen here. Uh, and so then Ayman uh, feels some hope because he realizes, hey, death said not yet. Too early. Got years to go. Got decades even. Uh, and so he, uh, he agrees, you know, he'll, he'll live for decades more. Of course, we know that that ghost is Teferi. Um, it's, uh, another, uh, time where Teferi like goes to the wrong period of time. And he's saying literally like, we're, we're way too early. We're not at the point we're looking for. Uh, we got decades to go. And so Teferi goes through time again and leaves Iman there. But that is, a uh, sort of our, our like through line to episode four, which is all about, uh, Falaji. The, the Falagis, the Mishra's people. Well, sort of Mishra's. They're not Mishra's people. Mishra's people are still the Argivians. He is Argivian. The Falagi just happened. The Falagi Empire is where he ends up. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I want to be clear that, like, he isn't Falagi. No, but he is, like, essentially in charge of their, their military. Uh, or at least by, like, the end of the story he is. At this point in the story, I think he's the still technically the like the court vizier or something. What is his title? Yeah. He's not the person in charge, but he is sort of the person in charge. Just in the same way Urza is not the person in charge of the uh the Maybe but Urza becomes yeah. the person in charge. It's when he uh, wears the mitre. Mm-hmm. It's when he gets the fancy hat. And the, uh, the and then the immediately cloth. takes it apart. <laughs> So uh, episode four is called The Ink of Empires. And uh, my little summary here for our our notes, 
is just a Wikipedia link to trench warfare. Uh, go read that Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> that is essentially what is happening here. It is just like World War One trench warfare, but with robots. Uh, and also like really well written and kind of like, I think actually maybe my favorite of the four of the, the five stories in the past. If I don't know. Yeah. Kayla stories might beat it out, but it is incredible. It is a very good story. Yeah, I, I think that this is my favorite too, as, as like dour as it can be. Like it shows that there are moments of hope within the war and there are signs of civility in it, but like it, it's still like a brutal like realization. Like the, these, these soldiers have been fighting in these trenches for the literal years. And it really impresses upon the reader of how grim thing to be is, is as like big as you think of an impact that you're having when you show up on the front lines, someone is hopefully you have someone there who is able to put you at your place. Cause like, this is a really, really stark view of how trench warfare worked here. And it was, whew, man. Yeah. It's uh it, it was very, it did a very good job of reminding people that like, this is a war between, I mean, like, essentially, this is a war between two people. This is between Urza and Mishra. Uh, and then, of course, like, all of the people on either side who are trying to take advantage of this war. You know, you have the the people in Argive who are thinking, like, oh, we can crush the Falaji and we'll take all their, their land. And the people of Falaji who are like, oh, we can use this as an excuse to take all the riches of the Argivians. And, and then you have, uh, you know, the people underneath them who are just doing their job. And then even further down the line, you have the people who are literally thrust into this war who are only here because they are literally forced into it, uh, either by the conditions of where they were born being part of the war or by the conditions of the fact that, like, someone grabbed them and said, you are going to go fight in this war. Uh, and so that's who this story is about. This is the story of Farid uh, and... Uh, he is a soldier among the uh, Falaji. He is a trench, like bottom of the barrel trench soldier. He's just showing up to work and doing what he's told. Uh, he does not get to make any decisions. Uh, and uh, it's a day in the trenches between uh, Tamakul and uh, where it's between Tamakul and, and where I forget exactly. Um, where would have where Krug would have been. <laughs> oh, OK, I wasn't sure. Uh, but yeah, they're fighting in those trenches. And essentially what's happened is if you're not familiar with trench warfare is you just dig a line literally into the ground where the soldiers live, sleep, eat. They are in the ground. Uh, and the goal is <laughs> to occasionally pop out of the trench and run over to the enemy's trench and kill them and take their trench. Uh, and then you go back and forth like that for, in this case, literally decades, because this is almost 20 years after that essential, the uh, initial fall of Krug. It's like 15 to, to 16 years after. Uh, and so Farid and the other soldiers who he is, you know, formed a little home with uh, are uh, introduced to some new recruits, some replacements who have come in. Uh, and uh, among them is Ayman, who, as we saw, got hideously, terribly wounded in the last story, almost died, uh, thought he was going to be out of the war forever, but was pulled back into it because uh, war is hell and you can't escape it. Uh, and so uh, they uh, together, Ayman, Farid, uh, Farid's other soldier, Karak, and uh, 
they come together and form a plan. And it sounds a lot like they're about to run away. That's like the vibe you get from the story that these three, they grab a fourth person because every patrol goes out in groups of four. And it sounds like what they're about to do is go out and pretend to be a patrol group so that they can run away. Turns out that's not what they're doing. They actually go out into the middle of this battlefield into the like rusted out no man's like, land hole. Yeah, no man's land of this like hull of this like downed ornithopter where they meet with a whole bunch of Argivian soldiers, another crew of Argivians, uh, led by, by the way, uh, someone who was in one of the previous stories, Laria, Laria. Her name is Laria, I believe. Uh, and uh, I think she survives the war and goes on to be in Pendragon uh, with Kayla. Um, but anyways, they meet with these uh, Argivian soldiers and they do like a little exchange. And it's like, turns out what they're actually there for is to like trade stuff. So like Ayman and Farid and, and all of the others brought like some of the new clothes they got, some of their like fancy belongings and new things that they found and they trade them for like food and other like nice things from the Argivians. And it's just like a friendly little meeting of these soldiers who are about to be told to kill each other. Um, Farid uh, explains to Lariya that like, hey, uh, just so you know, there's an attack coming. Uh, the officers are preparing for an assault. The whole front's going to move up. Uh, it's going to be a lot of bloodshed. And uh, that is like treason of the highest order that he's committing. And then Lariah's like, thank you for telling us. Uh, we are good news. Thank you for telling us, essentially. Uh, they all leave. Uh, well, the next day, they also the mm -hmm. side tells them that yeah, we've been we are expecting the attack, so yeah, mm -hmm. like there's a mutual mutual exchanging of the fact that yes, we both know there's an attack coming, and thank you for giving us a heads up. Yeah, and so uh, they leave the next day. The attack comes. All of the Falaji soldiers, which uh, include a, a contingent of. Uh, transmigrants, uh, some of Ashnod's undead soldiers, which is gross and terrifying. Uh, they have their assault. They attack the, the enemy line. They make it to the enemy trenches and they find them uh, empty. The enemies have left. They, they gave up on their trench. They ran away. And then as uh, Farid is settling into their new trenches, because they you know, claim these new trenches as their own, uh, they find a little slip of paper. Uh, that was written by an Argivian hand, but in Falaji script that just says our gratitude and also comes with some uh, piece of chocolate. So clearly Farid saved their lives by telling them of the uh, the battle. So very sort of heart touching, heartwarming story, but also like this is very sad. <laughs> this is incredibly sad when you think about it uh, along the lines of like these are common people who have been forced to, to gin like for the most part, just kill themselves. They're running across a battlefield where at any moment in time, a dragon engine could just come out of the sky and eat them. Or like an ornithopter could drop a bomb and just kill them and they have no defenses. And uh, they're ordered to run out and die by uh, people who are fighting a war for other people even. So it's uh, it's pretty sad. Uh, there's also like a tail end thing where uh, Teferi pops up in the middle of this like blasted out no man's land and runs into some, some Gixians. Uh, and that is some very creepy art that goes with it, uh, including a, a Phyrexian Gixian who has uh, replaced their mouth with like this glowing maw of metal 
uh, and one who has like an eye with way too many little dots of light on it. It's very creepy. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's episode four, also known as Trench Warfare, and it's bad. The story is very good, but war is bad. I've heard that. Uh, yeah, this <laughs> uh, this set is depressing as hell, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's grim. It's grim. Oh, God. Yeah, it's it's incredibly just if you read these stories and you do not like walk away with it with the thought of like, wow, this all really sucked. This was very bad. Uh, and you sort of walk away with a renewed hatred of Urza and Mishra uh, for the things that they have done. Uh, I think you're missing a lot because these this is not cool robot stuff. This is war is bad. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then we we do cap off the past stories with episode five, which is uh, as cruel as necessary. And this is the episode that has an author credit to Jeff Grubb. And the reason being is that, like, this is kind of a past episode. It's kind of a present episode. It's also kind of the end of the Brothers War, uh, the novel, not the like, you know, it's also the end of the story, but it's also the end of the novel, The Brothers War. Uh, this uh, story actually begins in the present day with Teferi getting into the time travel machine. Uh, and we just sort of see Teferi from his point of view, the times he like pops into the past, which I thought was like a really fun way to like mm-hmm. tie all of it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also uh, there's just some beautiful like poetic language throughout the story. It's hard to capture and just talking about it. Um, you sort of have to read it. It's genuinely some very beautiful writing. Uh, as uh, Kayla or um, Kayla, as Kaya sort of leads to fairy through the past and into uh, into the time period that they're looking for, uh, which, as we find out, is the very end of the Brothers War. To fairy is sort of hunting uh, like a needle through a tapestry, as he describes it, trying to pinpoint the darkest point of time, which is when the Silex is blown up. And he's looking to find that moment and hop into it. Uh, and it's just, there's this like really beautiful moment where he finally finds it. And Kaya. Well, so <laughs> I, I think it's also important to note that like this jump to the past is happening while in the present day, the Phyrexians are bearing down on Urza's tower and Joda and Elspeth are like pushing themselves to the limit to defend it and so on and so forth. And Nissa and Ren are having to like back up the lines and protect the base of the tower and all that's happening like outside while Teferi is doing this and Sahili mm. and Kaya are struggling to maintain the connection. And uh, this is kind of... I guess the best way to describe it is like the zipper point where the teeth from the past stories and the present stories start slipping together. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, we didn't really talk about like the reading order for, for these stories because there are the past stories and the present stories, but I think you really need to read like the four past stories and then all five present stories before you read this last past story. Like yeah. you don't necessarily have to read them in that order, but like, this should be the last story I think you read if you're reading the the set stories because um, it does sort of like take place at the same time as episode five of the present day and also like brings it all together. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say like there's a beautiful moment where we get to see uh, Urza blowing up the Silex um, and like Urza like crying and looking very human as he as he mm-hmm. recognizes what Mishra has become and he uh drops a tear into the Silex as he's using it, I suppose, and then um starts not the just explosion. A tear. Yeah. 
Uh, it's also blood. He has a massive mm-hmm. head wound from um, the weak stone. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Tears and blood, the filth of battle, the hopelessness as the completed Mishra attaches himself to a dragon's engine and rears up over the hill. The realization that all of this was a goddamn waste of his time. That he's a horrible person. That he's done terrible things. That his brother's done terrible things. That Gix has done terrible things. All of it builds up to a point inside Urza. And then time stops. That That's not what happens in the novel. No, it's not what happens in the novel. Uh, I mean... It does happen, but it's not in the novel because Teferi stops time as the Silex is blowing up. And in this sort of like moment of time that's been separated out in like the epicenter of this blast as Urza is simultaneously being turned to dust and also unlocking his power as a planeswalker or, you know, Glacian's power as a planeswalker uh, as that's happening to Urza. Teferi stops time and has like a conversation with him. The the way Urza's body is described here throughout this whole story is so good. Oh yeah. It, it, he, his his so body good. is literally being exploded at ground zero of the Silex blast and reconstituted as he ignites as a planeswalker. Uh it's very, very cool. Um yeah, and it's also sort of like a weird thought as you're reading it to like think of whenever Urza talks as like this like flayed flesh face with like glowing rock eyes, just sort of like, Hmm, yes, <laughs> take all the time you need. Um, so Teferi like stops the time and he actually steps into this like void with Urza and is like, Hey, uh, you're probably not going to remember any of this happening. Uh, but in the future, the Phyrexians are still here. You dedicate your entire life to fighting them. I'm one of your students. Uh, we need to know some information before uh before i leave because we have to stop them now it's a it's really bad uh urza asks a lot of questions about like where are we what's going on and it's just like wasting time uh but uh as uh, not mm-hmm. not to urza to urza it's hey i would like to gather information about what's happening to me right now so i can figure all this shit out because that's who urza is yeah um but teferi just kind of tells him like you know hey you fight for Exians. they fight for, uh, they try and invade Dominaria, and uh, you fight against them for for millennia. Uh, But it ends up that you lose. Uh, You don't succeed. Um, You end up uh, trying to, like, change time, and you fail at that. And uh, essentially what ends up happening is the Phyrexians are back, and they threaten all of the multiverse, and uh, we have to stop them. And we need to know about the Silex. We need to know how you activate it. And then Urza, like, explains, like, I held it just like this. Uh, I let my blood go into the bowl. I felt the entire weight of Terrassier on my heart. He thought about this entire continent that he had essentially ravaged and destroyed. He focused on that. He didn't need to read anything. Uh, He calls out Herkel and says, hey, Herkel taught me about magic a little bit. I didn't really believe her. Uh, and then he calls on the power and the, the, the Silex and the land and all of that. And, um, when he had nothing left, he poured everything he could into it. Uh, and then boom. And so Teferi's like, thanks. That's somewhat helpful information. Uh, their time ends up coming to an abrupt end 
as these, you know, shadows from outside of this void start like reaching in, which I interpreted as just like the magic holding time at bay was starting to fail. Teferi could only do so much. Um, and so then uh, Urza asks, will I remember this? And Teferi says, no. And then uh, time reflows back into uh, normal again. Teferi disappears and uh, Urza ignites. He becomes a planeswalker. And that is where the end of Miguel Lopez's story comes and the beginning of Jeff Grubb's writing. As far Mm as I'm aware, this is the end of the Uh, novel, The Brothers War. uh, A little bit of the the section before this is directly from the novel. But uh, yeah, the remainder of like the story story part is um, uh, direct text quoted from from Jeff Grubb's book. And that's uh, that's how we end it with Urza becoming a planeswalker and waking up Taunos from his coffin and being Mm -hmm. like, hey, uh, go teach people. Stop being my student. You must be a leader because I have to go. Uh, And Urza planeswalks away and Taunos is left in this snowy, soon to be ice age. And he uh, walks off and finds his way to Pendragon. And that's where uh, the first episode begins. Mm hmm. So uh, those are the stories of the past. Yeah, they're really good. They really are. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think uh, the the amount of time that we spent on them here today hasn't really done them justice because they 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 really are excellent stories. All of them. Like, I cannot emphasize it enough. If you haven't taken the time to read them, you probably should because they're just that good. Yeah, it's. It, I don't think even if we dedicated an entire episode to each of these chapters, we would have done them justice. Uh, the writing in them is is gorgeous. Miguel does an incredible job of really making you care for these characters, even when you know they're about to die. You know, you're reading the story and you know that these characters are not going to make it through this war, or you know that they could just at any moment be killed, and you read it and you still hope for their survival and you still think. I hope these people make it through. Um, it really highlights sort of the the terror that is this brother's war that's happening because like you really care for Ayman. You really care for Farid. You care for Sandwell, uh, Lariah. You, you want them to be happy and survive and get out of this hell. And then, you know, because you know the fate of this story that most of them aren't going to make it. Uh, so it's, it's very, very good writing. Uh, highly recommend you just go read it for yourself. But um, also, if you want to know a lot of the Easter eggs, because there sure is a hell of a lot of them, uh, Beer and Boar over the uh, over at Multiverse and Review wrote an article. I linked to it uh, on the Twitter last week or the last time we did the stories, I guess, in the present. Uh, and he, he really goes deep on a lot of these uh, references and Easter eggs and talks about uh, all the ways that like these stories are just a great wealth of, of references to magic lore. Chris, there's a mm-hmm. chance by that between the time of us recording and releasing this episode that Twitter no longer exists. So oh God, that's true. Twitter could just be Ooh. dead. Where will we post? Yep. Go find us on uh, our MySpace page. Um, I'll make sure to link to multiverse and review in my, my post on the, the bulletin board on MySpace. Reality <laughs> is we probably go back to posting updates on Reddit and Tumblr. Again. Ugh. <sighs> I refuse to go to Reddit. I'll do Tumblr. Uh, anyways, that's the end of our episode. Do we want to do some final thoughts? Or does anyone have any more thoughts about the story? My final thought was going to be about happy Pokemon. 
things, but the Twitter thing is just like, I cannot believe it has been less than a month of Elon Muskrat owning this owning the company, and it is already on the verge of total collapse after over 75% of its workforce is leaving after it being issued an ultimatum. I cannot believe, like, it, it blows my mind that this is on the verge of happening, and it's just like, how did it go so wrong so quickly? I mean, I know how, but it's just like, I, I, I can't imagine that any normal person taking over Twitter would have got caused it to go this bad this quickly like just doing like just being a hands-off owner I can't imagine just some Joe Schmo taking over and it going bad this quickly it, 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 it truly boggles my mind uh, Twitter would literally have run better with no one in as CEO yeah I think that's how we should have it there should be no CEOs. It's hard to express how important Twitter has been for me, both socially and professionally, over the past bunch of years. It is distressing thinking about how my life looks beyond Twitter. That network of people just disappears. Professional contacts just disappear. Social contacts just disappear. Nowhere is centralized like this. Nowhere has a diverse group of follows and followers like this. Nowhere has ease of conversation like Twitter does. There is no other place. Other social medias are different. They're for different things. There is nowhere like Twitter. The good news is, if you're an entrepreneur or a venture capitalist out there, Twitter's about to die, and you maybe have the ability to fill that void with a Twitter clone. So, Hell, you know. just hire all the people who made Twitter work and then, like, build your own thing. Like, you know what you can do, though? If you're looking for a community of, uh, of, of like minded people, you can go to patreon.com slash the Porthos cast <laughs> and pay $1 a month to get access to our Discord server. Perfectly done. <laughs> Perfectly done oh god i couldn't resist uh yeah twitter's dying that's sad uh but uh yeah uh i guess i'll just i'll have my final thought also be on twitter because um i don't know i like it a lot i don't do a lot with it i'm kind of just a professional reply guy don't know where i'm gonna go reply to people at but uh i guess it's gonna have to be on discord just gonna have to find a good discord server with a bunch of people i like and that's gonna be it for me Thank you all for listening. This has been <laughs> the Orthos Cast. We still got more. We still, we have to tell people uh, to yeah. You can go to our Patreon. You can pay us a dollar a month to get access to our Discord server. It's not Twitter. Uh, <laughs> it's very different. Uh, you can also pay three dollars a month, and you get our live listen tier, where you get to listen to us talk about things like uh, the death of Twitter. But also, just you know, you get to listen to the podcast uh, a few days early. Uh, so that's a really fun perk. We love our live listeners. Uh, if you want to support us, you can follow us on Twitter until it disappears uh, at the Vorthos cast. Uh, we're also, we post on SoundCloud every week. That's where uh, our show lives. Uh, we don't have a good SoundCloud URL. It's just look for the Vorthos cast on SoundCloud. Uh, I think we also cross post to like, you know, Apple podcasts and Spotify. So even if Twitter dies, you can still find our episode every week on those formats. Uh, 
I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, we should go back to posting on Tumblr again. We are, we, the account's still there. We are still the Vorthos cast on there. You know what? Yeah, go follow us on Tumblr. Maybe something will happen with that. Uh, we'll post maybe there. We'll, maybe we'll get a co-host. Who knows? I didn't Who even knows? know co-host existed until the last week. I don't even know. It's like clearly a Twitter-like, but I don't know. Anyway, it's been real, y'all. Whether Twitter survives or not, podcast will still be going. So thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast. <laughs>